there is a lot of creativity and knowledge and capability out there amongst the poorest of the people in the world. And I think what we need is respectful relations of solidarity between those of us that have had the benefit of university education and those that are most excluded and marginalized. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP26, and discuss what we can expect from this year's negotiations. Hi, my name's Emmeline Laney. I'm Tyler Stern. And I'm Lauren Ballatin. Welcome back to Amplifier. For the past few months, we've been discussing the ins and outs of COP26, from the concerns that were voiced ahead of COP about inequities to the decisions and outcomes that were made right in Glasgow. Over a month has passed since the end of COP26, and there's still some lingering questions. Why did COP26 feel so shut off from observers compared to previous years? Were the outcomes at Glasgow enough to keep us on track to solve the climate crisis? How can we take the lessons and the momentum from COP26 to mobilize in our own communities and create meaningful action? We're excited to wrap things up on this episode, our last episode of season three, with a debriefing conversation covering these questions and more. We were joined by three delegates, each from different backgrounds in communications, activism, and law, to discuss the reactions to the outcomes of Glasgow and what we can do moving forward. There's a lot to cover in this interview, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, Yeah, my name is Colin Spurway, um, and I have to confess I haven't been to Emory University this century, which is kind of embarrassing. I was was a Bobby Jones uh, scholar, um, which is an exchange program between St Andrews in Scotland um, and Emory, Gosh, in like 1996, um, and I went to theatre school in Emory and had a fantastic time, so I've got very fond memories of Emory. Um, but I was, I was particularly interested in political theatre, and I've gone on to have a career in civil society and activism, and currently I work for the International Development Charity of the BBC, uh, which is called BBC Media Action, because we take action using media. Um, and I'm the director for BBC Media Action in North Africa, currently sitting in Tunis, so wonderful to be on the call and, uh, and to join in with, uh, with my perspective. So thanks for inviting me. Hi, I'm Kumi Naidu. I'm currently based in Berlin, uh, Germany, for six months um, as a fellow with the Bosch Academy, where I am reflecting on the painful question of why activism is not winning fast enough and big enough, and as well as doing one piece of work around how to bring together the worlds of arts and culture and the world of activism. Um, I'm the volunteer ambassador of an African-wide social movement, Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity, and I'm the former Secretary General of Amnesty International and the former Head of Greenpeace. Hi, everyone. I'm 
so glad to be here with such esteemed panelists. Um, my name is May Bowen. I am an environmental lawyer currently based in DC. My connection to Emory is, is mostly why I'm here. I am a 2016 alumni who um, got to participate in our very first delegation uh, to COP21 in Paris, um, which sort of changed my life and, and put me on the trajectory that I'm on. It's how I figured out that I wanna be a lawyer. Since graduating, I uh, founded the Emory Alumni Environmental Network, which is you know, an Emory supported group for alumni who are interested in this space. And so I really love being able to talk to students and faculty and alumni about how we can continue to be involved in climate activism um, and other issues, even if we don't choose to do that with our career, or if we do to choose to do that in different ways in our personal time. I think we can just go ahead and, and jump in, getting a sense of uh, your reaction and experience at this year's COP26 in whatever form that may be for you. From COP26, it was a funny experience for me because I'm actually from Glasgow. It, I would say I, I made contacts at COP26, but I learned almost nothing about climate change from it. And I think it was a structural thing. I don't know what the rest of you feel. Kumi, you're very sensitive to structures of power. Um, and I felt that as a delegate, that I, I, know, I also work in communications, I felt as a delegate there was really nothing about the structure of COP26 that was trying to take me on any journey, informed journey. And it was partly because of COVID. Uh, I, I came out, we tested every day before we went into uh, COP26, and I was negative every day until the day I arrived back home in Tunis, and then I was positive. So the most, <laughs> the most clearly positive thing that came out of COP26 for me was my COVID test. Um, I'm still coughing slightly. I wasn't very sick, but uh, it was okay. So, so but, but, you know, I, partly because of COVID, as delegates, we were basically told, do your bit and then leave again. And I found that very strange. As it happens, I work for the BBC, and the BBC has an office straight opposite the conference centre, the massive conference centre this was held in. So I went over the road and went back to work each day and, you know, I did four or five panel appearances and moderated something. I went in and did my bit, but it was like one of those academic conferences which you go to and you meet all the other academics working in your same particular sector and you all knew each other anyway and you all knew what each other was going to say anyway. And I, as a delegate, had no real exposure to any of the other conversations and there were so many of them what I learned about what was being decided at COP, I read about in the news. But I worked for the BBC. I was in the room, but I wasn't learning anything. I don't know. Think that through. Well, Colin, Colin, you and I have something in common, which is uh, it's kind of weird when the COP comes to your home city, and it came to my home city in 2011. And um, sadly, I was carried out of the COP. I was... Uh, debadged, as I say, we did a protest uh, there to try and... Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I want to gently say that, you know, the putting all your eggs in the cop basket is not the way to think about activism for climate right now. Yeah. And what uh, Colin observes is uh, absolutely right. It's not really a place for learning. It's not intended to be a place for learning, actually. It's um, it's supposed to be a place where the conference to the parties, COP, of the different countries come together to negotiate deals. 
But the thing that I found bizarre about this COP was that the largest delegation to the conference was not the host country delegation, which is often the case. It was the fossil fuel industry, it was the oil, coal, and gas industry that had 503 delegates, right? That's, uh, you know, to imagine it, imagine like the Alcoholics Anonymous was having a global conference and the largest delegation to the conference was the alcohol industry. <laughs> uh, so, so in terms of how I, uh, I was inspired by the people that were not inside the COP. Uh, they have the finger on the pulse of the reality that we find ourselves in, which is that we are living in the most consequential decade in humanity's history. They understand that you know, if what we do in the next ten years and what kinds of changes we can systemic and structural changes we can make to our economy, energy system, and so on. I had a sense that the young people in particular really understand it. Uh, you know, their reference to COP as blah, 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 I think is absolutely appropriate. And therefore, when we see, you know, these COPs, like, for example, when I was, when I was the head of Greenpeace in 2015, and we were headed to Paris, we could see we're never going to get anywhere close to what we needed, right? So we, you know, people often say the road to, the road to, the road to Glasgow, the road to Durban, the road to, and, and basically what we said was, no, we shouldn't say a road to, we should say the road through. So it was all about the road through Paris. And all that Glasgow did was move us a few centimeters in the right direction nowhere near where we need to be. And I'll conclude by saying that the best comment on this was a tweet that I saw by somebody I don't know called Nathan Tanki, who said, it's not that COP26 outcomes are good, but could have been better. It's that they are very bad, but could have been worse. Do you see a, a difference in the way COP26 was conducted or kind of how it all played out compared to past ones? Well, Mary Robinson, the president of Ireland and the former UNI Commissioner for Human Rights, she put it very straightforward and she said this was the most male, pale and stale COP she's been at. Right? The COP, uh, this one compared to other COPs, you know, if I look at, I usually participate in the closing, you know, civil society folks press conference. And I'm sure if you go from 2009 to the one I did at Glasgow, I probably sound exactly the same, if I'm brutally honest. And therefore, I'm not sure we had that much value being there, right? I don't, and, and from what, you know, uh, Colin just said now, I'm not sure we get much return in terms of knowledge and so on. I think, uh, Colin, uh, I would agree with you, the most useful thing is the co in individual connections you make with people who are there doing the same thing and you, and, and that- and I'll tell you, Kumi, I thought the most useful connections I made with people were in the security queue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously, because it was insane. I mean, with, the, with all of the COVID restrictions, we were spending in the early days of COP, an hour and a half or two hours going through a queue. And it was fascinating because you were in a queue with, you know, 
people who are representing indigenous communities from the Amazon and people who are representing, you know, I stood beside the head of the UK government behavioral science unit at one point. I stood beside, uh, you know, agricultural scientists from Ghana. Really, really interesting perspectives. But that was interesting to me because they weren't in my sector. You know, they weren't in my panel on communication and climate change. So I didn't know what they were going to say. And we actually had something to exchange. And so, Kumi, I'm really interested in... And, and I, you know, I wonder why something like that is structured in such a way, because the substantive conversations in terms of actually reaching a negotiation on the year by which India will reach net zero is a room with about five or 600 people in it. Now, that could be COP. You, 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 could, you would have the full negotiation if they had no exposure to anything else. If there, one, if there weren't the 24,000 other people swilling around them, even in the delegate, the blue zone, the way that Glasgow was structured, you had those central negotiations, then you had this sort of 25,000 other people. Outside that was a green zone, which I don't know, Kumi, I never even saw. And outside that were the protesters who were so far from us that the, the, the noise wasn't reaching us. And I can't imagine there was very much leakage between those concentric circles, except, as you say, Kumi, with some of the really well-designed phrases like blah, 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 that was running through the heads of every one of us as we sat on a panel going blah, blah, blah. I think there was still that separation when I was um, at COP21 and COP22, but there were certain communication methods, some of them quite... Um, you know, low tech at, at the time, just because it was easier, I guess, um, in an effort to bring out what was happening in the uh, negotiation spaces. And in Paris, they started doing this sort of daily summary event. Um, it's sort of like they brought everyone into one room. Um, I, I forget, you know, it was Paris something, right? But um, they brought everybody in and would kind of say, you know, this is what we agreed to today, or, you know, this is um, what we accomplished. And, you know, those didn't have too much coming out of them until toward the very end of the conference when they're starting to say, you know, we have an agreement that's, you know, going to be signed. It's getting close. Um, but as a delegate, I remember going to those every day to try to get like, what is it that happened today? Um, to a point that Colin made earlier, you still can't be in all of those spaces at one time. Sometimes there's the, the full meeting, right? But there's all these side meetings as well on different individual topics between subsets of the parties. And for uh, one of the things that struck me as a delegate, and I thought about it a lot afterward when I went to law school and everything, was um, a lot of countries don't have the sort of delegate manpower that a large country like the U.S. has, where you know we bring hundreds of people to these things so that we can have multiple people in all of these rooms every single time, always have the you know, government's opinion heard, always have a finger on the issue. Other groups, they have to band together because maybe they only have five people attending the conference from their country. Um, they, can, they physically cannot be in all of those spaces at one time, whether or not they you know, were invited or not. Um, and so um, you know, I remember seeing groups like the um, Alliance of Small Island States. They kind of had to band together and you know, work across that entire community to make sure they had a voice in all of those spaces. And so to even think about the fact that in that first kind of cop of these sort of closed door meetings, they're not fully participatory themselves, let alone with sort of the outside community and protest and all the rest. 
from what you're saying, I imagine it was probably even worse at COP26, but it was certainly still there, um, it, you know, back in Paris. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's that's insightful. But I think you know, we also would return to what Kumi was saying about what your expectation actually would be of such an event, and maybe you shouldn't be putting too many eggs in that basket. However, I also look at this from the point of view of mass media. So I think there's three there's three layers to me. One is what happens in the internal comms. The second is how does news cover it and whose voices are being portrayed. But the third is. Why is it that even something like the BBC tends to think of this as a news story? And I think with the scale of the crisis that we're dealing with, we have to move beyond thinking of this as news. This can't be about reportage. The climate crisis needs to feature in our dramas. The climate crisis needs to feature in our sports reporting. The climate crisis needs to, needs to feature in, you know, in hip-hop festivals being covered by youth online radio. Um, the climate crisis, it probably does feature in that way if you are from Kiribati. Because it's in every element of your life. It's about how much food you have to eat. It's about whether there's education for your children. It's about whether you're going to have an island to stand on when you retire. We do have an intellectual responsibility to ask why is the COP important or is the COP a place where we should be putting our energies? If you ask me, as somebody who's been in the field, how much of energy you should put into the COP and so on, I would say zero, right? Because by the time we get to the COP, all the big deals are done already, right? The negotiations have been going throughout the year. It's there where the final... Uh, you know, crossing the I's, dotting the T's, some, you know, final pushes in this direction, that direction goes on. But, uh, so, so the fight, I, I think for students, right, you have a major responsibility because you have the freshness of perspective, right? And young people like, you almost refuse to accept when people of my generation say, young people are the leaders of tomorrow. If you wait for tomorrow, quite frankly, there might not be a tomorrow for you to exercise leadership. And I'm not being dramatic, right? And, uh, and so thinking about where you put your energies is very important. And, and um, Emmeline, you said, um, it was such a privilege to be inside and outside and seeing it and so on. And I was glad that you used the word privilege because I do think I would invite you to reflect on this fact, right? This is the global negotiations, right? For the future of the planet and the climate. Why doesn't the global negotiation look like how the world looks like, right? It is representing what we call the global north, the developed countries, the rich countries, and so on. Like, for example, if we ask how many universities in the world were able to send delegations to the COP, right? I think the number is small, but I can tell you I interacted with about 20 uh, university delegations at the COP. They were all from rich countries, not a single one. So my challenge to you folks at Emory is as an act of solidarity, why don't you all campaign and you all say to your 
um, whoever supports this activity of your going there, why don't you say for next year, the resources that we mobilize, we will support one country in the Pacific Island to send students there. I, I say this seriously because that's a kind of, you know, kind of change that we have to have, right? You know, we, we can't, we, we really cannot pretend to be winning. So what I want to appeal to you all is that we are in a moment of extreme moral crisis. It would appear that the rich parts of the world who appear to be predominantly white have decided that the poor parts of the world are expendable, right? Basically, to even contemplate going beyond 1.5. See, going to 1.3 for some countries in the Pacific Islands is already a death sentence for them, right? Kiribati, which Kevin mentioned, already has got a lease agreement with Fiji to relocate the entire country, right? A program they call uh, migration with dignity, right? Because they know they there's a, like a 90% chance where things are. And it's terrible that the countries that are paying the most brutal and the first price for climate impacts are those that have contributed virtually nothing or the least to the problem. You know, you can describe the problem that we have is that of climate apartheid. So I think in the context of urgency, it calls on all of us to use our energies. I think the spirit that you'll have is excellent, which is you are saying what we learned over there, how do we, 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 we spread it in our community, right? And I think that um, all I'm saying is don't believe that what you need to spread is only what comes out of the cup, mm. right? You got knowledge already. The very fact that you were moved to want to go to the cop, you had consciousness and, 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 a, and a passion that was driving you there. I'm saying focus on what took you to the cop, but find other more impactful ways to contribute. I'm not saying don't ever go to the cop. If you find yourself in a situation where you genuinely, to your own art, can answer the question, I think I can make a material difference if I go there, right? Because the important thing is, I would say it's good for people to have the experience. But also, as my daughter sometimes says, keep going over and over again, you get contaminated. I think you really expressed something that was so important that, yes, it's about decarbonizing, but it's fundamentally, you mentioned climate justice, and there are still parts of how do we address components of extractivism and power dynamics within and between countries. Being a, a podcast with a university and somebody who believes how education can shape culture, in what ways, if any, do you think education can be a part of stewarding um, a transition that is not only decarbonized, but just in everything from access to energy and fights against extractivism and rebuilding different par parity within um, power structures. Wow, education. Uh, uh, I think, Emmeline, education is critical, absolutely critical for the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change because the nature of how the conversation of climate is talked about 
is alienating to the majority of people in the world. Degrees, parts per million, drowning people in uh, alphabet soup of acronyms and so on, right? It's so, but what we need is not, I think what we need from the education community is to help us with how do we communicate in a more accessible manner? Let's to be very clear. The window of opportunity to avert catastrophic climate change is small right now, right? It's small and it's closing fast. If all of us were given $5,000 right now, right? And the, the bet was humanity will solve the problem of climate change, right? Don't, we can put it in the chat if you want, <laughs> but how many of us would confidently bet that humanity was going to avert it? Right now, most of us would say no. And I think we must refuse to accept that the way we are behaving right now as a species is the best that humanity can be. We have to refuse to accept that the levels of creativity, artistic uh, deployment, ingenuity, and so on that we are seeing cannot prosper much more. And just to be clear, there are hundreds of thousands of ordinary men and women across the world, grassroots level and so on, who have been forced into roles of creativity and so on. And I invite all the students of Emory to see one movie on Netflix, which kind of shows us, which is called, it's, it's from my part of the world, from Southern Africa, from Malawi, it's called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. There is a lot of creativity and knowledge and capability out there amongst the poorest of the people in the world. And I think what we need is respectful relations of solidarity between those of us that have had the benefit of university education and those that are most excluded and marginalized. I want to build off of what you were just saying, um, kind of about like recommendations, especially for higher education. If we could go through Colin and May, getting your reactions to what Kumi was talking about, and specifically if you also had thoughts on like bringing this back into the Emory community, like sponsor people from developing nations to attend COP or, or any other ideas to kind of take action. Um, one thing that I was thinking about when Kumi was speaking about um, accessibility of communication, I, I, I think that's really critical. And it's something that is important to ensure that the, the communication of issues and ideas and importance and, you know, structural innovation and change, whatever you want to talk about, that it actually is moving back and forth between folks in power and folks who are most oppressed, right? And one important way that a university can play into that, that I think, at least in the U.S., is not the way things are done, and it's really a shame, is emphasizing educating everyone, no matter what it is that they're studying or what profession or, or role that they want to have in their career in the art of communication and particularly the art of popular communication. So, you know, there are some scientists out there, there are some lawyers out there who could write, you know, a book for the popular audience that's, you know, accessible, uh, impactful, you know, but a lot really can't. And it's because we don't emphasize that skill in the professions or in, you know, scientific fields, we, we emphasize the way that we write inside those fields to each other. Um, you know, so I'm trained to write to judges, other lawyers, um, occasionally the media, if they really want to dig into, you know, a complaint that we file, but it, there's, there's jargon, there's legalese. 
it's not written, uh, we're not taught to write for the public. And so we then have to have folks translate for us into press releases or whatever to communicate what it is we're doing. I think the same is true in the sciences um, and other fields. But if you come from a background where you've been taught or you've worked in a communication space, um, there's a lot more that you can do to influence the writing that you use in your field so that it can be consumed by the public directly. In addition to what May is pointing out, it'd be important to be helping people to understand how to communicate to audiences, but also be important that there's climate change education within the formal curriculum of every single department to Emory. That, that, that because this is such a cross-cutting issue, that it isn't left to those of you who choose to sign up to an environmental studies course. It actually cuts across law and health and transport and engineering and so on. But maybe more importantly, I would say, you're still, to Kumi's point, talking to a very elite community. I think the real challenge in communication is the other six and a half billion, and within 10 years, seven and a half billion. And the question is always, what is it you're trying to talk to them about? I can see no value in running a course in climate science for Tanzanian farmers. In addition to the education, it's not just about the transfer of knowledge. It is also about ideas. And I think, you know, Kumi's working at this at the moment in Germany, looking at the role of creativity in the arts. I feel very strongly that a major component of the communications has to be imagination. But informed imagination. I'm not talking like utopianism. It's about saying... There, there are people out there with solutions to so many of these problems. They, they, need to be, they need to be heard, they need to be amplified. As May says, they need to understand how to present their complex technical solutions in understandable, replicable ways. But I, do th I think that for a lot of these challenges, it, it is going to be about an informed sense of hope. So one question to Emery, and I want to see if folks know the answer to it. Has Emory University divested all its investments from fossil fuels? No, we're not. So my advice to you yeah. is put your energies on that. That's a concrete, quantifiable commitment to the climate crisis. If one wants to be cynical, one could even say that if the university is supporting to go, you all to go there, but still maintaining its investment mm -hmm. in fossil fuels, Apart from being hypocritical, it could be seen as a diversionary tactic to appear to be good when in fact they actually have not got their own house in order. Mm -hmm. And charity begins at home, and I think it's important that you do what you can to make your place of higher learning the best it can be. As we look ahead, it's clear that future COPs must be more inclusive and equitable one with greater representation from communities and countries most affected, one where the fossil fuel industry isn't the largest delegation, and one that gives observers more opportunities to contribute and to get involved. At the same time, however, as we learned, we can't put all our eggs in one basket. Regardless of what happens at COP, we need to bring action back to our own local communities. This is a type of action grounded in a perspective of fundamental systems redesign, where every person, no matter what they do or who they are, has a role to play in climate action. 
Universities in particular, including our very own Emory, are uniquely situated as leaders for change. Four takeaways for action discussed today include, one, to completely divest from fossil fuels within and beyond our endowment. Two, to apply a climate lens in every classroom, regardless of field and university level. Three, to increase training on communications to the public as stewards of knowledge for our community. And four, to foster a community of advocates to lead collaborative climate action. This conversation was a thought-provoking way to end season three, and we hoped you learned as much from it as we did. We'll be back soon for season four, but in the meantime, you can learn more about Emory Climate Talks on our website and YouTube channel, and make sure to check out the episode show notes for more information on the speakers and the amazing work they're leading. This week's episode was created by Tyler Stern, Emmeline Laney, and Lauren Ballatin. Audio and graphics were produced by Tyler Stern and music by Zola Berger-Schmitz. A special thanks again to Colin Spurway, Kumi Naidu, and Mae Bowen for joining us for this discussion.